Amen. Well, I enjoyed the worship time. And I look forward to seeing what God has for us um, through His Word. His Word is powerful to change us and to shape our lives, to shape the way we live, uh, not just the way we talk, but actually the decisions that we make in our everyday lives. Let's stand and we're going to read Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter. Look, this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You can be seated. So just a little bit of background to the letters that Peter wrote. Uh, we have First and Second Peter. The first letter that Peter wrote was written probably around AD 64, right around the beginning of Nero's persecution of the church. He unleashed a persecution that was unprecedented um, on Christians and uh, a lot of them ended up fleeing their, their homes, their businesses, their families, their communities, everything that was comfortable they left behind because of their faith in Christ. And Peter wrote specifically to these dispersed Christians um, to encourage them. He did not tell them that their situation was about to get better, or that persecution was going, going to diminish. In fact, he alluded that their suffering might get even worse. But he gave them well-grounded reasons for rejoicing in the sufferings that they were experiencing. The hope that was laid up in store for them at the return of Christ would outweigh any sufferings that they could experience uh, or encounter here on earth. And the sufferings that they were experiencing were contributing to their purification and hope and the subsequent glory that they would experience because of the things they had suffered. And finally, that their sufferings were a means of identifying with Christ, that as Christ suffered, Leaving an example for us, we should also follow in his steps. 
So he told them to rejoice in their sufferings, that even though for now it was necessary that they would be grieved through various trials, knowing that the, the tested uh, faith, the testing of their faith was going to result in praise and glory and honor at the coming of Jesus Christ. And now a few, few years later, close to the end of uh, Peter's life, we know it was close to the end of his life because he told them that, that Jesus had revealed to him that he was just about to put off this body. And he writes a second letter to them, also a very hopeful letter, um, but sandwiched in between the the hopefulness and the triumphant note the triumphant note of it is are, are the warnings uh, and instructions for them to to know how to navigate uh the the perilous times that were to come in the last days and uh, this this uh, second epistle of Peter has been called the believers conflict in the latter days so there's this conflict of between what Jesus has done for us and the realities that we experience in him because of what he's done for us and the realities that are right around us that we experience of people who are opposed to the gospel and particularly people who scoff the realities of the gospel and the reality of what lies ahead uh, through the return of Christ. That's one of the things he's addressing here. So he's addressing the dangers of the false prophets who were subtly bringing in destructive teachings. They were preaching some kind of gospel, some kind of message that was similar to Christianity, but it was twisted and they were denying the master that brought, bought them and bringing swift destruction for themselves. So he's reminding them that the return of Christ is imminent. It's just around the corner and that it should shape the way that they live and it should shape who they listen to, who they allow themselves to be formed by. So he says this second letter I am writing to you beloved and he uses the word beloved like four times in this chapter. I I love that because it's like guys I'm writing this stuff to you because I love you and I really want to see the best possible outcome in your life. I'm stirring up your sincere minds. I know that that you've heard the gospel and you've been transformed by it and he talks about that earlier in 2 Peter. And this word sincere, your sincere minds, means literally that which being held up, viewed in the sunshine, is clear and pure. So your minds have been purified through the gospel of Jesus, but you need a reminder. I'm reminding you of the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of the Lord through the apostles. What's he reminding them of? The fact that in the last days, there's going to be people who are opposed to what they had heard from the prophets and the apostles and from Jesus through the apostles. There's going to be people who will come. There's scoffers that will come in the last days with scoffing. I like that line. Scoffers going to scoff, right? Scoffers are going to come with scoffing. And they're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? Now, they're not just saying, like, when is it going to happen? They're saying, yeah, right. It's not going to happen. Just like in Psalms, they said, where is your God? <laughs> See, you don't have a God. It's obvious because he's not, he's not intervening in your life. Or like in Malachi, the people were saying, where is the God of justice? Saying, See, God doesn't set stuff right. It doesn't matter how you live. In fact, they said, uh, the, the unrighteous have favor with God. See, he blesses the unrighteous just like he does the, the, the righteous. And Malachi's response to that is, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? 
He is actually coming back and he's going to set it all right. And Peter's response to the scoffers is the same thing. Look at what's going to come just soon. These men are saying, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation. The prophets who predicted the return of Christ, people who have predicted God's interventions in history, see, none of it's happening. Stuff's just going on the way it's always been and the way it's it's always going to be. They're giving an appeal to the stability and the supremacy of natural law, of the material. The material is the only thing that exists. How do we know this? Because God doesn't intervene. If there were a supernatural, he would be intervening in the material. But obviously he's not. So the material is all that exists. There's no testable evidence of divine intervention. The natural laws, what is testable and falsifiable, is proof that the supernatural doesn't exist. And Peter refutes this with two arguments. The creation and the flood. He says they deliberately overlook this fact. And that's something that we should remind ourselves. When people deliberately, when people scoff the supernatural, when they scoff God's interventions in our life, and it's not always just unbelievers, sometimes it's believers professing believers who scoff the work of God in our lives. When they do this, they are deliberately overlooking God's interventions. And in this case, they were deliberately overlooking that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of the water and through the water. How? By the word of God. They deliberately overlooked the fact that God created everything that exists by his word. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to like a machine shop um, where they do heavy metal work. Jeff, I know you have. You've spent a long time in some of those. Some of the equipment they have in there is really, really heavy. So heavy, in fact, that they'll pour their concrete, I don't know, 8 or 10 inches thick, maybe more sometimes, to just support the weight of those very heavy pieces of equipment that they have in there. Like a metal brake that weighs, I, I don't know how many tons. Incredibly heavy equipment. Now, just imagine that I would have the power, and I don't, but imagine for a minute that I would have the power to lift one of those metal brakes that weighs, you know, tons and tons and tons, just like eight feet off the floor, just by speaking. I just say, okay, just be lifted up eight feet off the floor, and it goes up, and it hangs there. Would you go and stand under that thing if you knew that I had just told it to go up there eight feet? Now, maybe if you were a really good friend of mine, you'd be like, ah, I think he'll keep it there, and you'd, you'd try it. If you were not my friend, you probably wouldn't for sure. I probably wouldn't, you know, even if I were somebody's friend and they did that. God's saying, it's important to know that what exists, exists because I spoke it into being. And it it stays in existence because it's kept by the power of my word. And these people are deliberately overlooking this fact. This is one of the reasons that the creation matters. And it's one of the reasons that Satan is desperately trying to undermine the creation story. Because if he can get you to disbelieve that, to disbelieve the fact that God spoke creation into being in six days, he can get you to disbelieve just about anything else. And the second argument is that 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 world that was created out of the water 
So he uses the natural phenomena here, and it's probably a reference in part to the account in the book of Enoch where it talks about how the, the, the earth was surrounded by water, which is in line with uh, the account in Genesis, right, where God separated the waters uh, above from the waters that were beneath. So the earth was uh, surrounded by this sphere of water, and that when the flood came, that entire sphere of water collapsed onto the earth and deluged it covered it in a flood, in a catastrophic flood that destroyed everything on the earth except for Noah and his family. So this is a refutation to the stability of natural law. Because there's a lot of people who put their confidence in natural phenomena. What's testable, verifiable, repeatable, falsifiable. That's where they put their confidence. And he's saying don't because God in fact intervenes. He created it with the power of his word. And again, with the power of his word, he destroyed it with a flood. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just as there was power in the word of God to create the world and to subsequently destroy it with a flood, There's power in his word to bring the world and the heavens and everything that exists, all the natural around us, to fiery judgment. And Peter is telling them it actually matters that you remember this. It matters that you live as though you were remembering this reality, that everything around you is going to be destroyed shortly. Do not overlook this fact, beloved. One day... With the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. That's another argument that these people were using. They're saying, well, obviously everything continues just the way it's been. And so it's going to continue just the way it's been. There's no divine intervention. God said he was going to come back soon. Jesus said he was going to come back soon, right? He said the last days were going to be short. And here we are 30 years later and he still hasn't come back. Well, how about us? 2,000 years later, he still hasn't come back. Maybe that's why Peter wrote these words. Not so much for the people in his day as for us. He's saying God doesn't measure time the way you measure it. He's not slow in fulfilling his promise as you count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is the patience of God and the fact that he's not willing that any should perish that delays his coming. That's why Jesus hasn't returned. And you know what I thought about? If Jesus would have come a hundred years ago, do you know what that would mean? That would mean none of us would get to spend eternity with him. So I'm glad that he has delayed his coming as long as he has. It's the patience of the Lord. He's not willing that any should perish. He's wanting more people to come to repentance. And and we should be aligned with that as well. This is why Jesus hasn't come back yet. He wants more people to come to the knowledge of Jesus. He delays His coming, but not, not in the sense in which we think of delays. He's punctual. The day of the Lord will come, He says. Now, this... 
this reference to the day of the Lord was probably a very familiar reference to a lot of the, the Jews. The, the Old Testament has many references to the day of the Lord, and it's almost always a reference to God's divine intervention into human events. And just a few of those passages, Isaiah says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Reference to the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and of gloom, a day of clouds and of thick darkness in Joel. In Zephaniah, he says, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And in Isaiah again, he says, the stars of the heaven and their constellations shall not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So they knew full well the prophecies that had been given by the prophets of old, of the day of the Lord, when God was going to come back and intervene into human events. And he's reminding them that day is still coming. And just because thousands of years later it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it won't come. In fact, he says that day will come like a thief. How does a thief come? He comes when you're not expecting it. He's picking up an analogy that Jesus used in Matthew 24 and and Luke somewhere. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Paul picks up that same metaphor in, in Thessalonians where he talks to the Thessalonians about the when everyone is saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction is going to come. But he says, you are not in darkness, brothers, that that day should overtake you as a thief. So those who are looking for the return of Christ are the exception. It's not going to overtake us like a thief, even though we don't know when it's going to happen because we're always in expectation of it. We're always watching. We're not of the night or of the darkness. We don't sleep as others do. We're not asleep. We're watching for the day of the Lord. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved In other words, don't set your hope on Mars. I I read something recently where uh, there was some speculation about how life could be made possible on other planets or even in outer space. And there was talk about how a, a huge atomic explosion in outer space could possibly create the right conditions to sustain life. So if the earth becomes overpopulated or begins to, you know, uh, climate change begins to make conditions so unfavorable that we can't live here anymore, um, hey, there's possibilities out there. Well, probably not because it's all going to burn up. It's all going to be destroyed. It's going to melt with a fervent heat. And the other thing, he says, is the earth and all the deeds on it are going to be exposed. Jesus said, 
everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So that sounds a bit like a threat to those who don't want their deeds to be exposed, that when the Lord returns, everything is going to be laid bare. Everything that you and I have thought and done is going to be out in the open. But he said, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So for the believer, it's a promise. If you're for real, it's going to be exposed that you're for real. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? There are real implications for the way we live life when we believe this, when we believe that the day of the Lord is just around the corner. Now, quick poll here. Just just a guess, okay? So we're not going to hold you to this. Who expects Jesus to come back in your lifetime? Just raise your hand. Okay, so maybe about half of us. Um, I would guess that the same poll taken back in Peter's day would have probably gotten similar results. Maybe even a higher percentage. I don't know. I, I read recently that a poll taken up by Lifeway, I think, that one in three evangelicals approximately believes that Jesus is going to come back in their lifetime. If I have to, if I'd have to guess one way or the other, I'd guess probably he's coming back in my lifetime. Um, we had a pastor in Texas who believed that Jesus was probably going to come back in his lifetime. And he put, um, so he just put 20 year shingles on his house instead of 30 year because he's like, I think Jesus is going to come back before those shingles were out. Well, 20 year shingles in Texas only last about 12 to 15 years because of heat. Um, that must have been like in the early eighties because in the late nineties, he was putting shingles on his house again. And... Uh, I think he put 30-year shingles on this time. But that's not really the point. The point isn't that we, you know, uh, just build disposable houses or whatever because we think that Jesus is going to come back in a few years. The point is that we live in expectation of the day. And that actually changes the way we live. And for that pastor in Texas, it changed the way he lived. His priorities showed that he was about the return of Christ and that he was about people coming to know Christ. That's why he spent the years in Kenya that he spent telling people about Jesus. And that's why when the Y2K scare came, remember that? When everything was going to collapse and like there was going to be a huge economic crash and all that. Uh, I remember we visited a church near Dallas and the preacher there was preaching about how uh, the church should not be part of the problem. We should be ready for Y2K. We should build a storehouse and have... Uh, stocks of food there and we should be prepared for what's going to come because there's going to be an economic collapse when Y2K comes and he was um, giving us all uh, his advice on how we should be prepared for it and then soon after that this same pastor that I told you about preached a message on how to prepare for Y2K and it was entirely different he said Jesus promised that we're going to experience tribulation and he said what did jesus say when these things come run for the bush no he said when these things come lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh that's the mark of a person who is living in expectation of the day of the lord 
For us, it's not a day of terror. It's a day of redemption. It's a day when the creation itself is going to be released from being subjected to the curse of sin. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness has real implications for us. Because when that day comes and everything is burned up, the only thing that's going to last is what we've invested into godliness and holiness. Everything else is going to be burned up. Uh, recently was out on an island off the coast of North Carolina. Uh, man, I can't remember the name of it now. Cape Lookout. Cape Lookout Island, yeah. So there's a lighthouse there that... Uh, the, the, they were saying was pretty far off the shore when it was built, but gradually over the years, the sh- it's getting closer and closer to the shore. The lighthouse is not moving, but the shore is moving. The sand is eroding. And I thought of how ridiculous it would be to go build a house right on the edge of the seashore right there. You know, spend your life savings, whatever it is. 200000 or a million dollars, whatever you have, put it all into a house right there on the edge of the shore. Beautiful spot. When you know that that shore is eroding and within a few years, your house might collapse into the ocean. Right? Wouldn't that be ridiculous? And in the same way, isn't it ridiculous when we spend our life savings on what's going to burn up just soon? We don't know when the day of the Lord is coming, but we know it's going to be soon, and we know that we're supposed to live in expectation of it. How would we spend time in Moxville if we knew that sometime in the next two weeks, we don't know when, we don't know the day or the hour, but it's very soon, in the next two weeks, there's going to be a firebomb that lands on Moxville and just flattens everything, destroys it. It would be a different experience to go into Moxville, right? We'd be living with that expectation, like, is it going to happen today? Is today the day? It would affect the way we live. It might even affect whether or not we go to Moxville. But as believers, we are waiting for and hastening the day of the Lord. Did you know you can actually speed up the day of the Lord? You can hasten it. You can bring it by the way you live, by the expectation in which you live. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The fiery day of the Lord is not a deterrent for those who love His appearing. In fact, it's something that we long for because the deeds of the earth are going to be exposed and every injustice is going to be righted and all things are going to be made new. Now, we don't hasten it in the sense that God's like, oh, I had it on my calendar for that day. I'm going to move it uh, up, you know, five days or whatever. He's, he's already fixed the day. Acts says that he fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So he knows the day and the hour. We don't know that day, but we do hasten it in the sense that God is waiting for people to repent and come to him. And it's because of his patience with humanity that he's delaying his return when he wants to come back. And take us to be with Him. He wants us to be living in His presence. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which 
righteousness dwells. It's one of my favorite verses. And as time goes on, it becomes more favorite. Don't you agree? As you see the craziness around us, it just builds this anticipation for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, where everything is set right. The promise isn't only for new heavens, but for a new earth. And I think that should be especially hopeful for us. I think that our expectations of heaven can become so abstract and kind of nebulous, so otherworldly, that it's kind of meaningless. Don't you agree? Do you ever do that? Like we think of heaven as just this kind of like far off, otherworldly place, and we don't even really long for it or anticipate it. It's going to be a new earth where the entire creation is going to be remade in perfection. And the the quote by C.S. Lewis that we're probably all familiar with, if you find in yourself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most logical conclusion is that we were probably made for another world. You know, the things that we long for in seeing justice and seeing beauty and seeing what's right prevail, that is put there because we're supposed to be living in expectation of the new earth, of God taking creation and remaking it, redeeming it, delivering it from the curse of sin that it is under. Therefore, beloved, since you wait for these, be diligent to be found in Him, in Jesus, without spot or blemish, and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Remember, He is delaying His coming because He's working in you and me to complete His work. Man, Andy, when you said what you did earlier about your fear of starting out strong, starting out passionate and then not persevering that went through me like a dagger I had a really good friend his name was Oscar spent a couple months in his village like three months in his village remote part of Honduras and we spent hours and hours talking Um, we became very good friends he was not a Christian and one of the reasons he said he was not a Christian is because he didn't want to be one of those people who starts and then doesn't finish He didn't want to be a backslider. And he had experienced a lot of really crazy things. His dad being shot, his own life being uh, threatened numerous times. But that was his argument. He didn't want to start out and not finish. And a while after I left uh, that village, I went back to visit and I was told that he had been killed He'd been shot and killed. He never came to know Christ because he was afraid. He was afraid that he wouldn't be able to complete the work that was started. He didn't realize that God would have done it. God would have been faithful to complete the work that he started. And in us, we don't have to be afraid to start out strong. And to run strong because he's going to give us the strength to persevere. He's going to give us the endurance. Yeah, you might not always have the the emotional feelings of God having done something major last week in you. But he's going to work the perseverance in you. And he's going to put in you 
the mindset that looks to the things that are coming, not to the things that are around you, so that you can endure, so that you can be found in Him without spot or blemish. So when people say, how can God allow these injustices and all the wickedness on earth? Like, how doesn't He just burn up the world? Well, that's our answer. He's waiting because He's patient And he wants people to turn to him. He's allowing injustice and wickedness because he wants to give us an opportunity to come into a full relationship with him. The wicked are using the very forbearance of God, the very proof that he wants them to be saved, his delayed coming, as evidence in their argument that he's not going to return, that he doesn't exist, that he doesn't intervene in the human condition. And it's not just unbelievers, but it's those who have professed to be believers who have twisted the word of God to fit their lawless lifestyles. And Peter addresses this here. He says, just as our brother Paul wrote some things that are hard to be understood, and there's people that are taking those things, and they're ignorant and unstable, and they twist them to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. But you're not like that. You're not of those who take the scriptures and twist them to make them fit the way you want to live. Because you know this beforehand. You know about the coming of the Lord and you believe in it. And you believe that it's just around the corner. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people which would result in losing your own stability. Jesus also told his disciples when they were asking him about the last days. He said, that there's a lot of people who are going to f- to fall away and they're going to betray one another and false prophets will arise and lead people astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold but he said the one who endures to the end will be saved that's the promise that we have from Jesus the one who endures to the end the one who sets his expectation on the return of Christ, knowing that it's just around the corner. It might be in our lifetime. It might not be. I don't know. None of us knows. But we know that it's going to be soon. And we know that with God, time is very different than it is for us. He could come back any day. And he wants us to be living in expectation of that. And for the result of that expectation to be purity, Holiness, godliness, righteousness, for us to be found in Him without spot and without blemish. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank You that You promised You are coming again. Thank You, Jesus, that we can live in expectation of Your return. You're coming back very soon and we believe that with all our hearts we know that you made the earth and everything that exists with the power of your word and with the power of your word you have reserved it up to fiery judgment but we know that you've also promised that for those who look in expectation those who love your appearing it's going to be a day of redemption a day of finally seeing you face to face and experiencing your your full presence without any hindrance And we long for that day. We long for it more as time goes on. As wickedness increases, 
as the darkness grows, we long for the day when you will come back and restore all things to yourself. Help us to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.